Welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include myself, my name is Nidhi, and I'm a second year master's student, as well as some other PIN trainees. Hola, yo soy Elizabeth, a PhD candidate. Hello, I'm Kripa, and I'm also a PhD candidate. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam, and I'm a postdoc. Today, we are very excited to have with us Dr. Shivani Ghosh join us. Dr. Ghosh is a public health nutritionist and research associate professor at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. She's also the associate director for the USAID Feed the Future Food Systems for Nutrition Innovation Lab. Dr. Ghosh has over 20 years of experience working in the Middle East, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So to start us off, we would love to hear more about your early career trajectory, and maybe you can talk about how you did your master's and your PhD from UMass Amherst and went on from there. Yeah, sure. I actually, I'm from India. And I grew up in Bombay, and uh, which is now called Mumbai. And yeah, <laughs> I heard Kripa, you're from Bombay. <laughs> and, and I actually did, and for those of you who are not familiar, in, in India, the education system has you choose at 12th grade which direction you're going to go in. And I went in the direction of the sciences. And uh, there are arts and commerce as well that people choose. And so I got a what is called as a bachelor's in science or a BSc. And in, in fact, my trajectory was very different from where I am right now. I, I went into microbiology and then biochemistry. And for all practical purposes, nutrition was not at all part of that <laughs> education. And uh, it just so happened that as I was in my final year of my bachelor's degree, somewhere along the path, I got interested. I had a parent who suffered from cancer and I we lost him and during that period, it was really, I realized how important it was that nutrition needs for patients are very different with respect to nutrition needs for, you know, sort of healthy adults. And so somewhere along that line, I got very interested in doing more in an applied space compared to biochemistry. And so I did a, I did a diploma in uh, nutrition and dietetics and actually went in with the idea that this is where I want to be. And I came out saying, I do not want to do clinical work. I do not like being a dietitian. I don't want to be on the floor taking diets and writing diets. And so that sort of prompted me to sort of say, okay, what about, how about I apply my science knowledge and also the nutrition knowledge, you know? So the next best thing was to sort of think about a master's degree and and think about a research path. And I applied to several schools in the U.S. and was fortunate to receive a scholarship to be at UMass Amherst. And I think for those of us who know this, you know, when you come from a developing country, it's really hard to actually come to the United States or to come in Europe or any Northern institution without having funding. So I think that really was very important. And so I landed up at the University of Massachusetts at the Department of Nutritional Sciences within the School of Public Health. And I still was of the view that I wanted to do more biochemistry and with a nutrition focus, but I took a class with a faculty member at UMass Amherst, was a really, really important influence in my life after that. His name was Peter Pellet and worked in international nutrition. 
And that kind of pivoted me in the direction of looking at nutrition at a public health scale, but from an applied perspective. And that's how I, I landed up where I am right now. This is very interesting to hear. And I think also connects with us, all of us in different ways. So coming from that point, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how's your like day-to-day experience working now at Tufts University and also USAID? Yeah, so I think just the program that I am at right now, which is the Food Systems for Nutrition Innovation Lab, it is a USAID-funded program. So it's called the USAID Food Systems Lab, but it's based at Friedman School at Tufts University. And so what's very interesting about my position at Tufts is I get to be a faculty uh, as a research faculty. So I get to participate in the student community. I can teach a class if I want to. But then I also get to be part of a, a research and capacity building initiative that is focused on Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. So I, I feel like I have a little bit of the best of both worlds at this moment, which is, you know, I can, I can work on activities that, that I'm really passionate about and bring those passions and those learnings to anything that I'd like to relate to the students that I work with, either directly or indirectly through classes. Hey, thank you so much. Kind of shifting gears, I was wondering from your perspective, what are some of the main priorities and challenges in the field of public health nutrition or global health nutrition, maybe for the next five or to 10 years? Yeah, I was thinking about this and I think, you know, we do have, uh, and I'm going to speak about this a little in the webinar, is that we do have a very energized global community of nutrition. That's how I view it. And I've been participating in the global nutrition report expert group. And so I've been fortunate to be able to meet a lot of people from all over the world who are very keen on seeing emphasis and focus on country governments meeting their commitments to sort of shifting the targets for nutrition that have been set by the World Health Assembly. But I think what I'm realizing is that, you know, we are in a situation of transition. I think we have been in a transition situation for a long time. And more and more countries that we have been working in in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia are dealing with the dual burden or sort of malnutrition in all its forms. I don't think we are sufficiently equipped at scale to address all forms of malnutrition. But the commitment is there. The idea that we need to tackle it is there. But I think as a community, we need to do more to deal with the situation. Yeah, and sort of like picking up from that and, and considering those as like the future for including some of us and other young professionals. I was wondering, maybe you can talk a little bit about what are the, some of those skills or tools that you got during your graduate students, like master's and PhD, that you could use uh, where you are right now? So one is that, yes, of course, didactics did matter and having the sort of base knowledge I found my science background was very critically important. Even if I was working on a study that is a qualitative analysis of behaviors or practices, I found that my science knowledge was very critical across the board. So, you know, never underestimate any of the courses you have to do, or, you know, you feel sort of this is not relevant to what I'm doing, or, you know, why do I have to do statistics? Or, you know, I think it's it's really critical to know that everything that you do is going to be you will use it in some form or the other down the line. That's from the perspective of didactics. 
but that is also the other side of this is that there are a lot of skills, skill sets and skill requirements that you don't get through the degree. You know, whether it's sort of interpersonal communications, working as a team, leading a team, all those elements are not something anybody teaches if you teaches you at either undergraduate or graduate school. There are leadership programs and and I'm sure there are some folks who will say that, yeah, that really did help me, but I think those still land up being very theoretical. But yeah, so I think it's what you learn at school, but what you also learn outside school <laughs> is important. And my my motto has always been to keep the door open, keep an open mind on everything. Even if you feel like it's a task that's outside your skill sets, you if you do it, you might find that it's actually really helpful and useful for you in the end. For sure. And as a fellow Mumbai person who also <laughs> did bachelor's in science in Mumbai, I can totally agree with that, like how uh, the science background really helps. So thank you so much. And um, now we'd like to switch gears a bit. And we were wondering if your current position requires you to travel a lot and how do you probably balance like work-life balance and what are some of the ways that have worked for you, especially with international collaborations and partnerships abroad? So we are living still in the age of COVID. So I would say the past two years, travel has been very minimal for me. But yes, it it was a working in this space. There is a substantial amount of travel. I remember coming out of my PhD thinking, oh my gosh, I don't get to travel anywhere. And, you know, and then suddenly like four years later, I'm like, can please people stop because I really don't want to travel anymore. And so I think it's having a work-life situation that you feel comfortable with, you know, your, your partner feels comfortable with, your family feels comfortable with is really important. Then you can manage everything, right? So otherwise, you know, if, and if you don't feel comfortable with it, then you're not going to be able to manage work or life. So I think that would be my advice. It's like really important to, to keep all this in perspective. And, and I think, I used to I used to travel a lot like until 2020 I was doing at least one to two trips a month. And now what I've learned is well actually yes those things are important. Covid has taught me that though those those are important I want to be very sort of selective in what I want to travel for and what we've realized is that we can actually function via Zoom, right? Like if this was two years ago, I might actually be sitting in Ithaca with all of you. But in fact, we can do this very nicely sitting like this. I I don't think it should replace face-to-face interactions, but I think we can utilize technology so that we can make our lives a little bit more comfortable. And to some extent, I think also there is more and more awareness that we should be thinking a little bit more about when we travel as in our field, right? Like just there is this whole issue of carbon emissions. How much are we adding to the the carbon footprint? And so those things need to be considered as well. So I used to travel a lot. I don't travel a lot at this stage, but I can see me having to go back into travel mode. Thank you. And I'd also like to follow up with another question. Like what have been some of your facilitators and barriers and what are some of the lessons that you have learned in this COVID year, like by pivoting to traveling a lot to not traveling much and what are some of the lessons that you've learned? 
Yeah. So I think we have a system, you know, it has really helped for those folks who have a system or a, a workplace that has provided the technology. And, you know, we, we are at university, so we're very fortunate that we've got the tools, the resources in some instances. And I know of some people where, you know, the workplaces took a little bit of time and not because of intentionally, but just they were not equipped to provide a virtual environment for work. And so, so I think that that's one thing. So I think that for me, what the biggest facilitator was to be at in a workspace where I was able to immediately go from completely, uh, not completely, but face-to-face to completely virtual. I, I know folks who weren't able to, and, and I know folks who have been in a situation where their jobs couldn't be done like this, right? Where we, we, can, we can work on our computers and be online. So, so that for me was one thing. And the, the barrier was, I think, what I realized was no matter, to some extent, no matter how much we interact, the the engagement that happens or the kind of a connection that you have with people when you do this face-to-face is different. So I, I don't know whether it's a barrier, but as much as it's a little bit of a challenge, I think. Thank you for that. Now for a very different question, what is the best advice you've ever received or maybe what's some advice that you would give to current trainees in international nutrition? Um, so you can answer both or either one, I guess. <laughs> This will sound really terrible, but it was my, my, my PhD advisor. I was like, I was having a doubt about something. And he said, well, if you are, if you are in doubt, leave it out. <laughs> Not from the perspective of you were leaving something out and being untransparent, but it was like, you know, you, you shouldn't be committing yourself to saying, saying something conclusively about something if you are not confident about that interpretation I think that was I, I think I should qualify that but but it was like a famous every time you'd be like if you're in doubt leave doubt you know which is like sort of it's really been something that has been allowed me like you know when you are writing up analysis when you are interpreting analysis you have to be very you have to be comfortable that what you're saying is is truly what you feel comfortable seeing and that's truly what the data is saying that's really where that comes from but yeah, um, that was definitely something that stayed with me. I've, I've always used, I've tried, sometimes it's not possible, but try to keep this approach that you should always keep all options in your door open for everything. You know, I think if, for instance, if you're in a situation where you need to move to another position or you're, you know, moving part project, I, I think I'm, I'm using this from a perspective of actually moving jobs, right? Because Yes, you're leaving because you have an opportunity where you want to move, but but I think it's always good to keep in touch, especially we, we work in a very small space. So keep your network and never close that door because you may come back to it <laughs> in a few years. So that's from a network and uh, interpersonal perspective. I also found that from the perspective of thinking about it from the research that you do, right? So I think sometimes we we get in some instances we get focused in on one topic and that we drill into it and then we don't see anything else around it and that's fine because to some extent research inquiry requires a researcher to do that but then because we are we are in that sort of applied space it's very important to pull ourselves out a little bit and look so sometimes you might work on something and you finish working on it you write a paper or your thesis is written and you may not come back to it come back to that same topic for another 10 years right so keep options open, but also keep in mind that when you're working in applied space, what you do only as in that deep dive may not be sufficient. That's one thing. And two is you may work on something and you may walk away from it, but you might come back to it 
eventually, even if, if, if you didn't have funding and you had to move on to something else, but you're really passionate about that, don't lose that passion because you will come back to it eventually. Those are all really useful tips. I wanted to follow up on the networking piece and ask if you had any specific advice for networking, especially during this kind of COVID and slash almost going back, but then not really world that we're kind of in. You know, <laughs> I have to say, I, I actually don't when I think about, well, I mean, yes and no. I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's it's important to keep your networks. And so if you move positions or you leave university and move on to something else, keep track of your fellow students. And especially when you're on a program where there are quite a few students who are working in the space or who are going into different directions, keeping in touch with that network is always good because you never know when you need to connect with them. With respect to professional networks, I think we are living in the world of LinkedIn and there's a lot of sort of, when I was in that process of looking for jobs, we didn't have LinkedIn and um, there was a lot of one-on-one emails. There were emails. So it was one-on-one emails and there would be like a no one response. So be prepared that you might reach out to someone and you may not get a response, but always reach out because what's the worst that can happen? That person may not respond back. So build your LinkedIn profiles, your networks. People generally tend to accept invites and will connect with you. If you have something specific, you feel like you want to reach out to an individual or a group of individuals, do it. Because as I said, the worst that can happen is they may not respond. But the best that can happen is they might come back to you and there might be something interesting there. Well, thank you for all that. And, and that is actually a good opportunity to ask the next questions. And this is kind of a bit of a tradition in this podcast. So we we like to ask our guests about what is the worst and best thing about their work. You can answer in whichever order you would like. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll go with the best is I think I work in a space that is, is very meaningful for me. I'm very passionate about what I do and I really enjoy my job. And I think that's the best thing. Like, can you imagine being in a place where you don't enjoy anything that you do and you have to do it just because you need something nine to five. And so for me, that's the best thing. I really am a very passionate about the cause, if you will. And two, I really enjoy it, right? I enjoy what I do. And that's keeps me very motivated and keeps me, you know, long hours or travel or no travel or virtual you manage all those things, especially if you feel at the end of the day, you've done something meaningful and you enjoy what you do. So that's really the best. The worst thing is, I think it's not the worst thing as much as it's, maybe I should say something instead of the best and the worst. I'm going to say something where the the one thing that I have learned is you have to be very thoughtful about everybody around you. Like you have to be cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of views and opinions and everybody around you is going to come to the same thing very differently. How do you manage that without sort of confrontation, right? That's a critical skill for me that I feel it took me a while to get there. There might be people out there who say she still doesn't have it, but you know, that for me was very important. That sort of turning point where I'm like, okay, I can do this. I have a conflict with this person who is in is essentially in the opposite direction from where I'm coming from, but how do I handle it so that I actually get my view out there and, and get heard without causing a confrontation? So sorry, that wasn't the worst thing. <laughs> that was like the, the hardest thing. I think that's what it is. It's the hardest thing I had to learn, right? 
And the worst thing is, I, I don't know, it's like a lot of the times you feel like you've moved two steps forward and then you kind of move one step back. That's probably disheartening and probably the worst thing. I, there's a lot of other worst things, but I will, I will leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think the last uh, worst thing also sounds like uh, dissertation research for graduate <laughs> students. Yeah, yeah, been there, done that. No, but there's always a light at the end of that tunnel. Trust me on this one. Yeah, everyone, listen to that. <laughs> um, I wanted to follow up quickly on one of the things you were saying about the hardest thing in, in conflict resolution. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that on, on sort of like the strategies to try to reach an agreement uh, or, or bring your point of view without creating conflicts or actually, instead of doing that, actually bringing partnerships together. Sure. I feel like it's important to keep in mind that sometimes, so it's it's a, it's a not something that happens overnight. And I can tell you, I'm still sort of dealing with it, like learning as I go along. It is really very much something that comes with experience and age. <laughs> what I would say 20 years ago is very different from what I would say now. Somebody long time ago said this to me about emails. They said, if you get an email that you do not like, file it away for 24 hours or draft a response in a Word document and put it away for 24 hours and come back to it. So that's one way, even, you know, if you're, this is in the case of a written communication, right? So just, just sort of step back, take a step back because you if you write something, you know, and people, we are in the living in the day and age where people expect a response in 30 minutes. Texting and all is different, but emails, especially when they're leading to some kind of a conflict, it's very important to take a step back and, and sort of think about it. Maybe not anymore 24 hours. This was when it was okay for 24 hours to pass. But I think that would be one thing uh, I learned. And, and the other thing was when you're in a, in a sort of engaged in an interaction, you have to make a decision that are instances when you are going to have to step up or step out and, and put your foot down and say, I respectfully disagree. I am either it's because I'm the lead or because I'm the expert here. I don't, you shouldn't sound, I hope this doesn't come out as arrogant, but I think you have to like sort of step out and instead of make sure that your voice is heard. Right. And that's a hard, that's really hard. And, and I can tell you that I've been instances when I felt like I've done it right. And there have been instances where I like really failed at it. That's really where I'm going to stop and say it's, it's age <laughs> and experience will bring you there. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation, Dr. Ghosh. I think we all really enjoyed it and we've been taking notes. It was great to learn everything you've done and everything you're doing. And thank you so much for the great advice. And thank you to the listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. Many thanks to Elena Kirky for our theme music. See you next time.